MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill. And this is episode five of the series on the book Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us by Brian Kloss. Uh, We're about to get into part six, bad systems or bad people. And as if right on time, I have an announcement about bad systems and bad people. I am pulling this show, as well as Muller She Wrote, The Daily Beans and Clean Up on Aisle 45, off of Spotify because of the content Spotify paid Joe Rogan $100 million to produce and keeps promoting despite the racism, misogyny, and COVID disinformation and ableism. Now, this is risky for us because we're a smaller indie outfit by choice. Uh, But if I've learned anything from losing my government job for speaking truth to power, it's that doing the right thing is always more important than money, which is a lesson I hope Spotify learns. So I want to thank our patrons who actually help make it possible for us to leave Spotify. Um, Premium feed, ad-free, it's like three bucks a month. And you get all three shows, Daily Beans, Muller She Wrote, and The Book Club, uh, ad-free, premium. You get the happy hours and all the content and stuff like that. And it's just three bucks a month. And that helps support us, helps me be able to make these decisions and stay more independent. If you want to support us, now would be a great time. Uh, You could do that at uh, patreon.com slash Muller She Wrote. Now, in the upcoming chapter of Corruptible, We're going to learn about whether good people can become shitty when there's a system that doesn't hold them accountable, or if the shittiness is inherent. And further, what can we do to fix shitty systems to prevent good people from exploiting them? Or do inherently good people never exploit shitty systems? Now, this all begins with an experiment that shows first that systems, in fact, do matter, and then we'll go from there. This chapter opens with crops to cappuccinos and an experiment where researchers observed people at Starbucks in six cities in China, the U.S., and Japan. Now, they were looking at whether people tended to go to Starbucks alone or with a partner, and whether people would move a chair placed in the aisle, in everyone's way, whether they would scoot it back in at the table. And they found that in two of the cities in China, people tended to sit alone, and in the other four, people tended to have someone with them. Further, they found that in the cities of solo sippers, people sitting alone, they were far more likely to move the chair back to its proper place. When the experiment was replicated in America and Japan, twice as many Americans moved the chair back as they did in Japan. Now, the statistics were enough so that it wasn't due to the randomness of the data. So what's going on? Just so happens that solo sipping chair movers in the two Chinese cities were in the north, 
And the chair acceptors with friends were from cities in the south of the Yangtze River. Now in the south, for thousands of years, they cultivated rice. And in the north, they cultivated wheat. Now rice requires cooperation. No single family can do it. It requires community production of irrigation systems, and neighbors must rely on one another. So if one family floods their rice paddy early, it could ruin the output for other families. So it's very cooperative. They have to work together. In the north, the wheat requires little coordination or collaboration at all. So scientists began to wonder over hundreds of generations, does crop choice have an impact on culture? And rice theory was born. Thomas Talhelm of the University of Chicago championed this theory. Over thousands of years, rice growers became more communal and wheat regions more individualistic. Individualistic wheat cultures are more willing to go it alone, and they'll be more likely to take the initiative to change their environment when it doesn't suit them. Solo sipping chair movers, in other words. Now, communal rice cultures are more likely to go out with other people and they're less likely to change their environment. They tend to accept external environments and adapt themselves to their surroundings. Chair acceptors with friends. Now, even though few, if any of these folks, have any links to farming, the way their ancestors fed themselves seems to have an effect on their behavior. And it's not just behavior that's impacted. It's the way we think, too. Here, Kloss asks us to consider three words. Train, bus, tracks. Now pause for a second and pick two that belong in the same category. I'll read them again. Train, bus, tracks. Now if you pick train and bus together, you're more likely, more likely to be an analytical thinker because they're both modes of transportation. If you put train and tracks together, you're more likely a holistic thinker because trains and tracks relate to each other. Uh, He doesn't say what happens when you put bus and tracks together. (laughs) Uh, Now, Japanese people and the rice farmers tend to be holistic thinkers. Americans and wheat farmers tend to be an analytical kind of thinker. Tend to be, more likely, just so you know. So the solo sipping chair movers tend to pair trains and tracks, while the friend having chair acceptors tend to pair the train and the bus. But Kloss says that such neat overarching grand theories are always oversimplified and overstated, our destiny is not written in the fields. For example, I'm usually with a friend, but I will move that goddamn chair back every time, and I put trains and tracks together. So I'm part wheat and part rice, but I'm gluten-free, but I check two of the three rice boxes. I don't know. Going out on a limb here, but I think we can all agree it's complex. But what rice theory shows is that our thoughts and behaviors are definitely impacted, even if marginally, by something so distant and abstract as crops the crops our ancestors grew. Systems matter. So the question then becomes, how much do systems matter? How can we tell if someone's abusing power? Uh, if If they're abusing it, how do we know if they're a bad person or just the product of a bad system? I am heavily reminded here of trading places when we discuss nature versus nurture and how systems can corrupt or encourage people. But as humans, we are terrible at telling the difference between awful systems and awful people. That's because of something called fundamental attribution error. That's when we decide that if someone cuts you off in traffic, it was on purpose and they're an asshole. But when we do it, it was a mistake. We're good people. We have explanations and reasons. Quote, we convict others for the same behavior we exonerate in ourselves. Uh, But here's the problem to go on. Quote, if you were to put, if you were put in a worse situation or a worse system, odds are high you'd be tempted to behave badly, even skirt the rules to harm others. 
You'd possibly even be the corruptible monster you love to hate. Don't believe me? I'll prove it. And here's where we come to the section called Parking Tickets, Bankers, and Bees on the bottom of page 111 in the hardback edition. So let's start with the parking tickets. Now, diplomats with diplomat plates are immune from having to pay parking tickets. They get them, but they don't have to pay them. Even even they're issued, they still don't have to pay these tickets. Uh, and between, or they didn't at least, between 1997 and 2002, in that five-year um, time frame, diplomats in New York racked up 150,000 parking tickets in excess of $18 million that went unpaid. So in 2002, Mayor Bloomberg issued a three-strikes rule, where if you got three tickets, you lost your diplomat plates. And by the end of the year, within months, illegal diplomatic street parking ended. So were those that parked illegally just inconsiderate rule breakers? Or do you think the behavior was a product of culture or context? Maybe the illegal parkers are from countries where officials are taught that rules don't apply to them. Two economists from Boston University and UC Berkeley named Fisman and Miguel analyzed these data to find out, and their findings decisively backed up the culture and context explanation. I'll explain. Diplomats from places like Sweden, Norway, and Japan had zero unpaid parking tickets, so even when they could have gotten away with it, they followed the rules. Now, on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, diplomats from Kuwait had an average of 249 tickets per diplomat. The other nine countries to round out the top 10 violators were Egypt, Chad, Sudan, Bulgaria, Mozambique, Albania, Angola, Senegal, and Pakistan. So cultures of corruption had a drastic effect on individual behavior. But the system mattered too. Enforcement versus no consequences. And uh, even the top 10 violators stopped parking illegally virtually overnight when Bloomberg's rule went into effect. Fisman and Miguel also found that diplomats from squeaky-clean countries tended to park illegally the longer they were in New York because they grew used to the absence of enforcement. Right? You try it once, ooh, you get away with it, I'll do it again, and then you just keep doing it. Quote, culture matters, but so do consequences. Going even further, turns out we behave differently based on how we believe a system operates rather than how it actually operates. Case in point, in Chile, um, a very low-corruption country in reality. When Americans are there and they're stopped by police, they often try to bribe the cops because they assume they're corrupt. They usually end up in jail. Those same folks would never dream of trying to bribe a cop back at home in the United States. So bad behavior clearly doesn't arise exclusively from bad character. It can be based on false presumptions of how a system operates. Now, these insights are important for understanding whether power corrupts. If the system sucks, we have to focus on fixing the system. If the individual sucks, we need to find a way to put better people in charge. So to figure out whether systems matter more than individuals when it comes to corruptibility, we can look at bees and wasps. Now, bees and wasps are ruled by queens. And all female larvae in a hive can become a queen with the right diet. Becoming queen is the ultimate evolutionary goal. But from the perspective of the hive, excess queens are a waste. They lower productivity because an excess queen could have been a worker. Now, bees and wasps have evolved a policing mechanism to solve this problem. Workers actually conduct searches of potential excess queens, and those excess queens are killed. But some wasp cops can become corrupt. Same with bees. 
and they kill eggs while laying their own eggs. So what causes some species to develop corrupt cops? In uh, melipona bees, nearly 20% of the female eggs start developing into queens, while with honeybees, they have only 0.01% excess queens. So, are melipona bees just selfish jerks that are 2,000 times greedier than honeybees? Well, as it turns out, the melipona bees, um, it's ineffective policing with them that creates the temptation. Quote, when policing is more effective, there are fewer workers that try to lay eggs. They just have a system that lets them get away with selfish behavior, so they're more evolutionarily selfish. Humans, in this respect, are much like bees. Unquote. Now, with all that in mind, do you think a really bad person would behave badly no matter the context? And would a really good person resist the temptations of a bad system? To find out, Boss says we need to look at an example where one person rules over two systems at the same time. A good system and a bad system. And that brings us to King Leopold II in Belgium, who ascended to the throne in 1865, just as we were abolishing slavery here. He was a progressive reformer ruling Belgium. He adopted programs like uh, free compulsory elementary schools and universal male suffrage and stricter laws against child labor. He got Sundays off mandatory for everyone. He even earned the nickname the Builder King because he built public parks and public buildings, and he established a royal trust with all the land he had accumulated so future Belgians could enjoy what he had enjoyed. He was a benevolent reformer in Belgium, but he dreamt of something bigger. He became fascinated by colonization, even though the Belgians didn't share his idea. It's too expensive for such a little country. But as Europe started carving up Africa for itself, Leopold II wanted in, and he took control of what was called the Congo Free State. It was 76 times larger than Belgium. But it didn't belong to Belgium, it belonged to Leopold II. Right around that time, demand for rubber was skyrocketing because of the bicycle boom in the 1890s and so forth. And then Leopold realized he was sitting on a gold mine of rubber trees in the Congo Free State. All he needed was workers to collect the rubber and send it to Europe. Around that time, after a while, an 18-year-old shipping clerk, maybe one of the earliest whistleblowers, noticed something odd about the rubber shipments. The rubber was coming in, but no money was being sent back. Instead, what was being sent back by Leopold were guns and manacles. And the atrocities of what Leopold was doing in the Congo are documented in the book called King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hochschild, H-O-C-H-S, Child. Now, Leopold's barbarism was carried out in the Congo by an armed group called the Force Publique. They forced villagers to extract the rubber, which is an excruciatingly painful process where the liquid latex is taken from the vine and then placed on the skin, wait for it to harden, and then it would be peeled off. Let me read here from the book here. Um, quote, this is page 119. Anyone who resisted would be punished harshly. Leopold's armed troops would grab any women they could capture and take them as hostages. The men of the village were told that the women would only be released when the village chief had supplied the Belgians with the required amount of rubber. If the men didn't comply, the women would be murdered. And the men went off into the jungle to save their loved ones. The soldiers from the, the force publique would rape the women that they deemed the most attractive. Once the quota was finally hit, the women would be sold back to the villages for a couple of goats apiece. If villagers continued to resist, everyone in the village, men, women, and children, were massacred to send a message to surrounding villages. To ensure that the soldiers would carry out the orders, the Belgian officers demanded proof. 
the standard method was to bring back the right hand from each corpse. At times, board soldiers even used Congolese people as target practice. One member of the force publique reportedly decorated the flower bed in his garden with 20 human heads. So, in 1897, the World's Fair was in in Brussels, and Leopold II imported some of the Congolese to put them on display in like a human zoo. This is the benevolent king builder of Belgium, right? 167 men, women, and children on display. Now, by the time Leopold died, between 2 and 12 million Congolese had been killed. Quote, in describing the slaughter of so many people, George Washington Williams, an African-American investigative journalist, coined the term crimes against humanity. So, one man, two systems. Very different outcomes. But what happens when a decent person is thrust into a dictatorship? This section is called the Viceroy of Vermont, and it's about a ski instructor Klaus spoke to that was once tasked by Donald Rumsfeld to held the coalition provisional authority in Iraq, which was the uh, body in charge of creating a smooth transition from Saddam Hussein's dictatorship into a democracy. It was not an easy task. It wouldn't be easy. Now, on his first day, Bremer, this is the guy who who's, um, was picked by Rumsfeld, um, long history, long career of, of diplomacy, etc. He attended an unnerving meeting when he arrived in Baghdad. The security situation was dire. When he arrived, armed looters were pillaging shops and heritage sites and private homes and government ministries. And Bremer raised the possibility of the military shooting the looters to send a message that order was being restored. Now, the blowback was immediate, as though he had given the order in the United States. Americans were outraged. Many Iraqis were not, though. For decades, Saddam imposed order by force. Due process had never been a part of the system. They didn't know what it was. And Bremer truly believed in establishing democracy and the rule of law. But he also knew dictatorships didn't morph into democracies overnight. Iraqis were concerned that without the firm hand suggested by Bremer, the country would descend into sectarian civil war, which is exactly what happened. Hundreds of thousands died in the sectarian violence that ensued. Bremer believes that had he shot the looters, he would have saved lives. And he also believes deeply in democracy and freedom. But in Iraq, His values were tested. A decent person that inherits a bad system has to make decisions they wouldn't make in a good system. And unlike Leopold II, Bremer wanted to do the right thing. Quote, people are complicated. Few of us inherit dictatorships, but many of us operate in broken systems. Our behavior, good and bad, is shaped by those systems. Unquote. So it's clear that some folks are better at manipulating systems to get power. And it's also clear that bad systems encourage abuse, and good systems prevent it. So what's the solution? Klaas says, quote, As we'll see in future chapters, the solution is to reform systems so they attract fewer corruptible individuals, and then stop those who become powerful from committing any abuses. Easier said than done, but before we figure out how to fix things, we need to answer a key question that has been lurking in the background so far. Does power actually corrupt or is something else going on, unquote. And that's what we'll get into next week with chapter seven. This was a shorter chapter. Next week will be a little longer, and that chapter is called Why It Appears That Power Corrupts. It's on page 127 in the hardback edition. Please be sure to check out this week's Muller She Wrote, and I'll be back tomorrow on the Daily Beans podcast. And again, thanks to our patrons that make it possible. You make it possible for us to leave Spotify without too much risk. Uh, if you'd like to support our shows, again, you can at patreon.com slash Muller She Wrote. We could really use it this week. 
Uh, So if you've been on the fence, now would be a really good time. Thank you so much. Uh, Until tomorrow, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been AG, and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.